Well, Linda, welcome to another episode of Data Skeptic. Welcome. And you know we're doing our series on NLP, right? Natural language processing. Well, you told me so. So I've been putting this episode off for a while because I've been dreading that I'm not going to do it justice. The topic is word to vec and it's a deeply, deeply important topic in the field of NLP. So I guess it's time to just get down to business and do this. Besides me talking about word to vec has it ever come up for you maybe in your professional life? Does it mean word to vector? You got it. Yeah. Well, does it come up? No, I've never heard of it. All right. So you know what a vector is, right? Yeah. Isn't it a line? More or less. It's, well, it's a, a, yeah, that's a good geometric definition of it. I like to, at least for these purposes, think of it as just an array of numbers. So however many dimensions you have, that's how long your array is. And you've got one value for each to specify a a point. That's a vector. Mm -hmm. Okay. So word to vec produces word embeddings. So first, we've got to figure out what the heck an embedding is. We have not talked about autoencoder, so let's start there, because an autoencoder is sort of the root of Word2Vec. An autoencoder is a neural network. The best way to think of it is it's kind of like something that does compression. It tries to take an input signal and find a compact representation of that information so that you can retrieve the output information as successfully as possible. I don't know. I'm not sure I understand. What does it mean in layperson's terms? All right. So you've got some sort of input and set aside the NLP for the moment. This is general. Just uh, think of like, you know, how photo compression works, right? I don't actually, I don't actually know how photo compression works. Oh, well, let's do that as an aside. Picture your average photo. What are you picturing? Uh, Yoshi, a photo of Yoshi, our bird. <laughs> yeah, our bird Yoshi. And uh, describe the scene. Where is she located? She's in our dining room and being fluffy. Now, describe our dining room, specifically the walls. Are there any murals or anything in there? No, our walls are plain white. So if you look at the information of that image, Yoshi is actually pretty information complex. In fact, she's particularly hard to compress because of her feathers, right? There's so much variance and color and stuff. Yeah, actually, I remember us talking about photo compression now, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But the wall, on the other hand, I mean, yeah, because the light hits, it has a certain gradient and all that, but it's kind of sort of like one color the whole way. I mean, not really, but but close, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and if you lose some of that information, here's the thing, uh, lossy compression, in certain cases like a zip file where you're compressing a file, if that's like a spreadsheet or something in it, I mean, you don't know, you cannot have loss in a zip file. It's unacceptable. I can't open up my spreadsheet and have all the numbers be wrong, right? You're the accountant for data skeptic. <laughs> How would that be if a spreadsheet could change when you compress it? I I don't see what the point is of compressing it then. Yeah. So there you need lossless compression. But for a photo, if a couple of the pixels are off from what you thought they were, who cares, right? Yeah, of course. Usually the human eye can't even tell. One of the common compression techniques, and I think this is how JPEG works, and you can notice this if you compress something at low quality and look at the result, it tries to make rectangles that are all close to the same color. So it would look at Yoshi and be like, wow, her feathers are so diverse. I'm going to ignore her. But the background beige-ish wall, is that the color of our walls? No, it's not beige. It's I just call it white, but it's off-white. 
you know, there is some texture to it. It's not like it's going to black it out like a green screen where it's just all the same color, but it'll try and find these as large of rectangles as it can find that are basically close enough to the same. And then it'll store just that rectangle and say in this shape, the color is just one constant thing. Or maybe there's fancier ways it works now that I don't know about where it stores a gradient or something like that. I don't know. But basically, it tries to summarize an area and say all of this is you don't have to store every pixel. You can just store the rectangle. Okay, got it. So that's lossy compression. We can try and make a neural network do the same thing. So a neural network, let's say it's looking at an image, it can have a neuron attached to every pixel, and that's the input data. So that's, you know, three values because there's color values, three values for every pixel. So even a small image like 200 by 200, that's 200 times 200 times three. That's a pretty big vector of data to describe an image. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. A lot of photos are even bigger than that. What could we do to make a neural network compress it? Well, you could give the neural network a setup where it attaches to all the inputs and then it kind of shrinks down at every layer. So there's less uh, neurons in the hidden layers down to some kind of like middle layer where there's just a finite number of neurons available. And then uh, the way you evaluate the training of that neural network is to say, okay, if I force you to represent this image with just a couple of values, and then I ask you to reproduce the image, how faithfully can you do it? I can reproduce the image on what or using, using what? Uh, using the compressed form where you're asked to reduce it down to just a smaller vector space. Oh, okay. You're saying how accurate is it to reality? Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's like your loss function. Let's take it in a different and maybe slightly convoluted way. What if you had a, uh, a shopping list? You're going to the grocery store and you have one checkbox. You can only make sort of, for some reason, you could have to have checkboxes, right? So every item converts into checkboxes and you're just going to bring all those check things. So you have a, like a bit for every item. A very exhaustive way to make your grocery list would be to say like, well, there's one, the first column, if I check that checkbox, that's for potatoes. The second column is for carrots. The third column is for radishes and so on and so forth. You would literally need one column for every type of ingredient or thing you would buy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your grocery list would be a really, really long vector because you also are going to store like a, a one or a zero for you know whether or not you're buying something at all. But you could probably compress that list into smaller versions if you had some very clever checkboxes. Like you could have um, things like colors as checkboxes and then categories like roots. So an orange root would be a what? An orange root would be what category? What would you buy if I said, Linda, go to the store and buy an or- a root that is the color orange? Oh, turmeric. No, that would be a spice that is the color orange. Turmeric comes from a root. Looks like ginger. Oh. Oh, you can... Oh, really? Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've been wondering what that thing is. I see it in the produce section. Well, I was going for carrot, okay? Oh. <laughs> but you raise a good point. If we compress the list and we said like, you know, you have checkboxes like root and color, well, then you'd have a collision because turmeric and thank, good example. And thank you. Uh, turmeric and carrots would look like the same thing in the compressed representation, right? Yeah. When you go to, if, if I tell you to get the uh, orange root, you could potentially bring back the wrong thing. 
But if I told you to get the white liquid, maybe you'd come back with milk. Some of the times you get it right and some of the times you wouldn't, depending on how smart we were in the way we compressed it into this finite list of words. Okay, that makes sense. In things like autoencoders, you're building a neural network to do this. And it's not coming up with these abstractions that I described, like roots and liquids and spices and colors. It's just coming up with some sort of mathematical version, the best one it can find, to say, how do I describe these inputs, which are in n-dimensional space, and describe them with only m number of numbers, where m is less than n? Okay, m is less than n. What's next? So if you train this really good, then you can take any full description, whether that be a grocery list or an image, and uh, it's it's a big size. You can compress it down to the small size, um, but you've learned via the autoencoder the smartest way to do that, to come up with the most compact mathematical representation so that when you do the autoencoder in reverse, you get back uh, the truest image you can find. Mm-hmm. So people got the idea, well, can we do this for language? Can we ask you to compress text in and get some sort of vector representation out of it that is a useful representation of the language? And it'll come as no surprise that, of course, you can do that. You can use the same sort of approach to compress text. But here's the really cool part. When you force the text down into that lower dimensional space, the way Word2Vec learns to do that, it puts similar words very close to each other in the vector space. So if you drew them out, you know, like in a, you know, some sort of plotting way, you would find that things that are close together, in our example, carrot and turmeric would probably be close together. And they'd be a lot closer than milk, right? Because milk is, doesn't share the color or the category. Okay. I'm with you. So part of the way they do that for Word2Vec is with an approach called a continuous bag of words model. Do you remember when we talked about the bag of words model? It's been a long time. Uh, It's been a while. I remember the word. Did you have an analogy about fruit? Uh, You know, I probably did knowing me. (laughs) That's the way I try and relate to you because you eat a lot more fruit than I do. Well, you eat none. (laughs) No, I eat some. But uh, yeah, so a bag of words is when you do an analysis on text that is just based on like the frequency of the words. That might be okay if you want to decide like, is some text uh, coming from, is it, you know, from a medical textbook or is it the instruction manual to a video game? With bag of words, you can probably tell that really easily. You know, medical texts don't talk about experience points and leveling up and uh, in turn manuals for video games don't talk about organs very much and so on and so forth. Now, that won't work at all if you want to detect, like, fake news, obviously, but it works for a lot of applications. Now, the innovation here, the continuous bag of words, uh, which is sort of a misnomer in a way, but it's the idea that you take a string of words put together and then maybe hide one and try and predict the word. So I came up with a fun way to teach this game. Um, Here's how it works. I am going to read a couple of excerpts from the 1983 cinematic masterpiece War Games. And I'm going to ask you to guess what the missing word is. Do you understand the rules? Oh, goodness. Okay, let's try. So the first one, I'm going to say blank where there's a blank, and you have to guess what word fits in the blank. Okay. You got it? I'm trying. All right. Nature just gave blank and started again. Gave birth? Would nature give birth? Well, they're constantly giving birth. Yeah, things are living and dying. Uh, okay, try another one. Nature just gave blank and started again. Gave out. Maybe it just gives out. 
surrenders. Close. Okay. Yeah. So the actual phrase is give up. Oh. Nature just gave up and started again. But nature just gave out and started again is kind of like that is pleasing to the ear. I'm not going to say it's better, uh, but it it fits. And in this context, then we might learn that up and out are kind of similar words. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Joshua is trying to find the right blank so he can launch the missiles himself. The right blank. Hmm. The right button. Okay, good guess. That's not the correct answer, but uh, a very good guess. Guess again. I mean, I don't know what launches missiles other than buttons. Is there a hint? Linda, do you, you don't have any idea of how missiles get launched? Have you not seen by the, the 1983 cinematic masterpiece War Games? No, I've never seen. <laughs> Jesus, Linda. Well, you know what we're doing after this, right? I told you, I'm trying. I'm trying here. I don't know what you're talking about. So what did they How launch? Did it? Was it out of a bag? Was it out of a a bomb? What is it? I'll, I'll now read it with the right answer in place. Joshua is trying to find the right codes so he can launch the missile himself. Oh, codes. Now, I thought of two other options. Joshua is trying to fi- find the right key, and Joshua is trying to find the right access. All of those kind of fit, Right. So you don't think button a button is access? It's yeah, access I'm sorry. Yeah, yours is good something. too. Yeah, yeah. Joshua's trying to find the right button is also a good option. Um, so this is like the canonical word to vec example. So button, the correct answer, codes, key, and access all kind of fit that sentence, right? You could believe that those all filled in the blank. Okay. What we're learning here is that all those words are kind of sort of similar because they all kind of could be in this situation. Okay, similar. But how do you I how do you judge this? You're just using your own judgment? There's no scientific way? You train this on a very large corpora of data. In fact, um I think Word to Vec, there's a couple famous ones that uh, have been built by like Google and Facebook. I think the Google one is trained on their crawl of like almost the entire internet. Facebook's is trained on like their news articles, I think, and like people have done it based on Wikipedia. You take a massive amount of data And then you run this algorithm on it. So it sees so many examples that, you know, it would start to notice that this sequence of words talking about, you know, trying to find blank and missiles and launching and stuff that words like button and codes and key and access all commonly show up in the same positions. Okay, you got me. I'm following. So we got two more in our game. That's the canonical example of how words kind of that seem like they might fit together. Word to Vec is going to learn that those are all, uh, it makes sense to put them all in the same area of the vector space. Now, here's the third one. And this one is really hard on purpose. Um, So uh, we've taken all the blank we can. All the crap. Yeah, that, that could fit. The actual word is steps. We've taken all the steps we can. Oh, steps. Okay. Now, it fits, but you would probably have never guessed steps, right? I mean, it would have been a lot of guesses, potentially. Most people wouldn't just guess steps out of the gate. No, I wasn't thinking that. That's right. Yeah. Unless, of course, they've seen the 1983 cinematic masterpiece War Games many times and know that line. This is an example where there's a lot of noise in the data set that uh, Word Devec has to contend with. Because if you hide that word and ask it to look at the surrounding words in order to pick to predict what that missing word would be, there isn't enough context clues there in this case for it to figure it out. So it's not like Word2Vec is totally magical. It has a lot of noise like this to contend with. 
Thanks to this week's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. You know, my love for learning never stops. There's still so much I want to know and explore. And with The Great Courses Plus, I have unlimited access to learn virtually anything. The Great Courses Plus is a great streaming learning service, but you can also watch or listen on the go. There are thousands of lectures to enjoy in topics like math, science, history, and engineering. And the one I want to highlight today is The Secrets of Mental Math. You know, there's a great Asimov story that fits into something like this where everyone has forgotten the arithmetic ways of doing things and this guy rediscovers long division. Of course, you already know long division, but can you really do it in your head? Mental math will save you a lot of time. And this course teaches you a bunch of tricks and secrets for how to do it. Now, of course, we all have calculators in our phones, but being able to do mental math very effectively and quickly will come in handy in so many circumstances. Whether it's a quick guesstimate or knowing a few tricks for doing really fast multiplication of a lot of numbers. If you can do it, you'll take advantage of that muscle more often. And believe me, math is everywhere. Professor Arthur T. Benjamin will run you through 12 lectures that teach you all the secrets you need to know about doing mental math. See the different ways we can combine numbers and break common rules and interchange techniques to arrive at the answer more easily. This is just one of the many great lectures on The Great Courses Plus. It's a fantastic source of knowledge, and I know you're going to love it. And to help you get started, they're offering Data Skeptic listeners a free trial with unlimited access to learn anything. You can't beat that. But to get this offer, you must sign up via our special URL. Help us out by letting The Great Courses Plus know you found your way to them through Data Skeptic. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. One more time, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. All right, let's do the last example. Cobra Dane, is this a blank? No, this is not an exercise. Is this an exercise? You got it. All right. Now, I picked this one on purpose because you just did something that word to vec can't do. How did you know it was exercise? Because the person responding said it. We're reading the English and kind of understanding heavily from context that if you say, is this an exercise? He says, no, this is not an exercise, that blank equals exercise. I'm not saying word to vec would never get that right, but that's a situation that word to vec isn't really designed for because it would require some sort of memory or some sort of attention or some sort of mechanism in the learning in order for it to, to know that like a word from later in the sentence might pop in here. What it's trying to learn is just to predict based on the words that come before and after what's likely to be in the middle. And uh, just it's sort of the structure of that neural architecture doesn't necessarily allow it to use the context clue that you just used. So they don't actually look at that it's a conversation and that someone might be telling you what the word is in the conversation? No, word to vec is not explicitly designed to take care of something like that. That's actually a very advanced cognitive skill. We as human beings take it for granted. But from a machine learning perspective, that's a really impressive task you pulled off. So I'm impressive. Okay. For now, I mean, we're going to start playing the imitation game eventually, but yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to start savoring the moment. It's right. very rare, my husband tells me. <laughs> <laughs> that you're better than a machine. <laughs> yeah, love it. All right. So we're taking this idea of the autoencoder. You want to kind of compress things down to a, a lower dimensional space. And then we're going to train that on the continuous bag of words where we look at before and after to guess a hidden word. And that gives us a word to vec model. Then any new text you want to put in, any word, can be mapped into the vector space. Now, if word to vec never saw a certain word, 
it just is going to probably put it in a random or nonsense place. Actually, I think that's what happens. Um, it might throw an error. I can't remember. I haven't dealt with that in a long time. But basically, it's not going to know how to process words it's never seen. That's another reason you got to have these really big corpuses so it's seen enough variety. So word to vec also isn't going to be super adaptive to new words that show up, but that's beside the point. I want to talk more about that compressed vector space when you reduce it down to like you only have a finite many uh, dimensions to store stuff in. And the nice feature is that similar words get mapped to similar places in the vector space. Is it intuitive to you why that happens? That similar words get mapped to similar categories? Is that what you meant? Similar places in the vector space. What's a place? Oh, a place. Maybe place is a weird word choice. I should say that two words that are close, the distance between the two vectors is smaller than two words that are not similar. So we would expect like carrot and turmeric to be uh, not too far away from each other in the vector space, whereas turmeric and George Washington are probably quite far apart in the vector space. Okay. So then what was your question? Is it intuitive to you why that would happen? Why similar words would be closer in space. But what are the X and Y axes? Well, that's the complicated thing. They, they, uh, so first of all, there's more than X and Y because you usually have like 300 dimensions is kind of like the arbitrary number people pick with word to vec So it's X, Y, Z and, and 297 more. But if we just think of it as X and Y, they're just numbers. They don't actually mean anything. They're the values that the algorithm converged to. So it's not totally interpretable. So I, yeah, I don't, un- I don't understand. Yeah, it, it is a little bit magic. I don't know that I'm going to convince you on this episode of exactly how it works, but the best intuition I can give you is that you should think of it as sort of this compression process. You're asked to represent something that's you know really uh, large in a smaller space and then be able to recover the original information. So if you take things that are already kind of close and you put them close together, even to the point where they might collide, you're making better use of the limited dimensions you have. Like when I was doing the grocery list and I said, well, let's have color as one of our uh, smaller dimensional space. That's a nice idea because I know color is very discriminative. You know, if I say the red fruit, that cuts it down pretty far, not perfectly, but far. Or if I say the white liquid, same story. Oh, and I also just said like, oh, root and fruit and liquid are categories. So if, if I just say you have two X and Ys, one is the category, and I don't know how it's ordered, but it's something. And the second is the color. Those are my two dimensions. And I picked them because I know that those are effective characteristics for summarizing. You pick them for summarizing. What does it mean to summarize? Well, like if I have to describe something compactly, I can't use too many words saying it's a fruit or it's a vegetable or it's a root or it's a grain, that immediately cuts down how many, which aisles you're going to look in, right? If I say it's a grain, you're pretty much going to like the grains aisle. Okay. So you're talking about food categories. Yeah. So do you see how those choices are sort of a way I can compress the bigger set of information? I mean, yeah. If you're just making general food categories like a flower, a vegetable or a fruit. So word to vec, you were asking about its X and its Y, even though it's you know more dimensions than that. It's not human readable as my example of category and color and other stuff. It's just a numeric value that fits the data very well. What's the range of, of this uh, numeric value? 
Oh, um, I'm pretty sure it's any num. It's just a real number. It it's going to tend to be clustered somewhere like not near zero, but I, I I've never noticed really big magnitudes in this stuff. It's usually sort of like practical numbers, but there's no limit. Okay. So do you visually look at it or you're, what kind of, when you say clustering, how do you know it's clustering if you don't have an X or a Y? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, one thing you can do is once you have the words mapped into the vector space, a common thing people do is then apply an algorithm called TSNE, which we need to do an episode on one day. TSNE is a visualization clustering algorithm that can map every any dimensional space down to two dimensions in a way that pretty well puts near points together and far points far away, similar to like the whole thing we've been talking about, just with a different method, a more statistical distribution-based method. Um, so that's something people will do to their Word2Vec stuff so they can kind of plot it in two dimensions. And then you'll start to see all this kind of spooky stuff. Like, you know, uh, if you look at one area, it's all proper names. And then another area, it's all breeds of dogs and different kind of stuff like that. Like does cluster with like. Okay. So you're just talking broadly. Um, now let's talk more practically about a real world use case that's famous in word to vec Get ready for this. This is going to knock your socks off. Take the word king and run it through word to vec to get its vector representation. So that's some number in a three dimension, 300 dimensional space usually. All right. So it's just a number. It's just an array of 300 numbers. And that's the representation of king. And you have no idea what those numbers mean, except that that's what king is. Now, take the representation for the word male, or maybe it's man, can't remember, and subtract uh, male from the king vector. Now go get the representation of female and add it in. So king minus male plus female equals, what would you expect? Queen. You got it. And that happens in word to vec That's creepy, right? I don't know. I don't even know how it works. I kind of want like a visual because I'm not seeing like actual numbers or actual things assigned to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're a podcast, so those visuals are pretty complicated to do, but it's also hard to visualize because it's in a 300 dimensional space. If you just take the code and you run the basic mathematics, it's undeniable that king minus male plus female equals queen. So clearly, word to vec is definitely capturing some semantics that are there in the data set. That might be kind of cherry-picked. That's such a like amazing example. Uh, not every example you try is going to work exactly that way, but a lot of things do kind of work out. Although I should report there's a negative thing you're not going to like. What do you think you get if you say doctor minus male plus female? Doctor. Well, it's still a doctor. Are you saying they turn it into a doctress? <laughs> no, worse. That would at least be humorous because it's kind of like a pun. They turn it into nurse. What? That's not the same. It's not the same. You're right. Uh, it, that is a, a flaw that arises out of the data sets that word to vec was trained on. So word to vec is not sexist inherently, but the data sets like the entirety of the internet uh, if you train on that, that's the representation it learns. It's it's uh, an artifact of the bias that's there in the English language or the use of it. Note to self, don't be sexist. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, get 
gender neutral met- messages on the internet, I guess, to balance that out or something. So that's a, actually a bigger topic we should delve into more. I would love to see if there's any like feminist computational scientist out there who studied that further. Um, but that's just sort of a sad example that we should always be skeptical of how we use our models and whatnot. And Word Devec is certainly no exception. So yeah, why do you keep talking about this? Why does Word Devec matter? All right, I got a couple of reasons for you. First of all, for feature engineering, and this is how I personally use it the most, I'll take a bunch of text. And the old way I used to do deal with text, what like when I was in grad school, was the bag of words stuff. So you'd create some, you know, you'd create some frequency vector. So how you know it could be thousands of uh, elements long because it's just a zero or a one. Is it the word I'm looking at? And that was really impractical. Word to vec, since it kind of does this compression thing, it means every token gets converted into a vector that's just 300 values. So even if I stack up a couple of those, I'm able to convert text into a numeric representation that is easy for other machine learning to take as input. So essentially, it's feature engineering. It's turning my raw data into some features that I can do machine learning on top of. Even besides that, it does a good job of balancing out and spreading the text out in that vector space, which helps kind of bootstrap machine learning algorithms for some technical reasons we won't get into. So feature engineering is my number one reason why I like word to vec Another reason we should cover it anyway is that it's a good example of transfer learning, which is very important in natural language processing. This is where you train a model on some area of text, and then you like use parts of that model to apply to a smaller area. As we talked about the last time you were on the show, the key to natural language processing is very, very large corpora. You remember that? A body of data. Yep. The bigger, the better for NLP. It's very data hungry because language is so diverse and plentiful and uh, has so many words and so many ways you can express things. In most cases, most researchers and people don't have millions of documents. They might have hundreds of documents if they're lucky. For a long time, it meant you couldn't do much natural language processing, or at least nothing all that interesting. But now, if you take something like Word2Vec, which is pr- like a, we call it a pre-trained model, and then you use it to transform your data, suddenly you've enriched the data and you've taken the wisdom, if you will, from the pre-trained model and, and taken it and transferred it into your application. We'll talk later again about transfer learning in another episode, but that's another reason I like word to vec The other important reason to capture it is that it's really interesting to see how this algorithm starts to capture some of the semantic structure of language, like that king minus male plus female stuff. Just through this algorithm, we're emerging these sort of novel properties that are interesting about the way it represents language. And then I guess my last one is that this could be useful for improving search because if you know someone is trying to, and this is an area that I've used it, someone is searching for one thing and you can't find that exact phrase, but you can say like, oh, I have this document that has very similar phrases. Maybe I should retrieve that for you. Okay. I can see why that's useful. So yeah, word to vec uh, if you want to be serious about natural language processing. Word to vec in my mind is like the inflection point when we started to move in the direction of more um, neural network based approaches that have really revolutionized NLP. So I'm glad a couple weeks into our series, we're finally getting to it. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear more. Oh, you better be because uh, we've got some really fun follow ups on Word to vec coming with a couple of guests that I have in the can. So looking forward to getting those out into the wild. Uh, we're running a little long for tonight. So thank you as always for joining me, Linda. Thank you, Kyle.